0: Hey, welcome to our roundtable entitled Narrating Migration, Emerging Methods in Cross-Disciplinary Directions. I'm the organizer of this roundtable, Chris Grayton. A little bit about myself before we get started. I am a faculty member in the Department of History at University of Virginia. And I am an Ottoman historian. I don't really work on transnational migration normally for my own work, but I've been delving into it lately. And uh, along with Reem, uh, we had this idea to create a roundtable that will help further these endeavors by exploring uh, methods uh, of migration studies and really some of the best uh, things that migration studies are bringing to the overall uh, field of Middle East studies, uh, of course, from an interdisciplinary perspective. So in this roundtable about narrating migration, we've brought together an interdisciplinary panel with two historians and two sociologists. Our historians are Andrew Arson across from me here and Reem Bailuni on my right, and our sociologists are Rowan Arar and Neda Makbule on my left. I'll introduce them in greater depth the first time they speak in the round table, but before we introduce them, I want to introduce the round table and what we're thinking about. Our round table will consist of three sections, one about narrative, because we want to talk about how to narrate and how to write about migration and especially the dangers of narratives, certain narratives especially, Then we'll talk about space, because migration introduces a lot of interesting questions about space. And we'll conclude with the subject of politics, thinking about the politics of scholarship and the political implications and consequences of this very engaged field, a field that is particularly um, important for thinking about contemporary politics, even when you're writing about the past. So we'll start with our section on narrative. I'll direct the first question to one of our historians, Andrew Arsan. Andrew Arsan is senior lecturer in modern Middle Eastern history at University of Cambridge. He is author of the book, Interlopers of Empire, which studied the Lebanese diaspora in colonial French West Africa. More recently, he's published a book about Lebanon proper called Lebanon, a country in fragments. Andrew. Tell us, before I ask you the question, tell us what you're working on now, just a sentence or two.
1: So I'm just working on a couple of uh, conjoined projects. One is a general history of Lebanon, which addresses migration but doesn't have it centrally uh, focused. And the other is a history of Beirut, which actually does think about Beirut as a place of displacement and placemaking and movement.
0: So as a historian, we're going to start off with a question about sources for you, because historians' sources are more finite than people who are working in the present. In migration history, we have a lot of documents to work with, but many are not produced by migrants themselves. Many are not produced by the people we actually seek to write about. And even when they are, they still present methodological challenges. What is the biggest challenge facing the historians seeking to narrate migrant histories,
1: uh, and how would you address it? There's a couple of issues that many of us are familiar with. One is the unsystematic scattered nature of the sources, and also the fact that they're very you know, eclectic, they come from different sorts of repositories, um, state resources, uh, corporate, private, etc. And trying to move between them and trying to make sense of the different logics of these different sorts of archival repositories and the kinds of stories they tell uh, is an issue, I think, for all of us. The issue that I confronted in particular when I was writing my PhD, which became th- that first book, was of Empire, was the fragmented nature of the stories themselves. I wanted to write micro histories of these people. I really wanted to be attentive to the subjectivities of these people, their life stories, you know, the way they move through places, um, what they made of places, what they made of themselves. And the archives don't always allow you to do that, regardless of where you're getting those from, you know, police records, migration records, whatever. Um, Even when you're reading them against the grain, even when you're trying to think about particular ways of reading, sometimes the stories just run out and you just don't know what happens to somebody, they disappear, they don't leave any traces. And that doesn't perhaps allow the richness of texture that you want for. So you've got to kind of find a way of collating lots of different microhistories into a sort of a collective narrative of experience as best you can, I think.
0: And so your point is essentially that the person becomes reduced to whatever they appear as in the sources, even when you're trying to do the best justice to the complexity of their experience. There's a limitation what aspect of it you can access. Do you have an example of creative ways of
1: addressing this, filling in the gaps? Yeah, I mean, so one thing that you can do is to read against the grain, so try and scratch away the logic that, uh, I don't know, the police officer or my immigration officer or whoever is trying to impose on that person and try and get some of their own voice and some of their own thoughts and, and ways of being. But I think for me it's more, it's that resilience in the archives of just trying to retrace somebody, you know, who flits in and out of you constantly over the course of their life and deal with the absences and deal with the silences and accept that you're not necessarily going to be able to retrace every moment or every stage of that person's life history, but that you can still make something of all those silences and absences.
0: Thanks. We'll continue the conversation about sources, but in a different way, moving to one of our sociologists, Rowan Arar. Rowan Arar is an assistant professor in the Department of Law, Societies, and Justice at University of Washington. She's author and co-author of a number of articles, which you should all look up, and has a couple book projects underway. Tell us more, Rowan.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for being here. Uh, So I, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about the book projects. I'm building on my doctoral research uh, in Jordan with uh, Syrian refugees, Jordanian citizens, um, and uh, NGO and government officials. I'm interested in thinking about the global distribution of the world's refugees and the role that Jordan plays on this global scale. I conducted 175 interviews and um, 16 months of ethnography over a four-year period to collect the data for for that book. Um, I'm also working on a book with David Fitzgerald, theorizing the global system of refugee management. And in that book, we um, imagine a composite refugee and follow the different stages of, of refugee displacement, starting with internal displacement to displacement in neighboring countries, usually in the global south, to uh, seeking asylum, which usually happens in the global north or the west, or resettlement, which less than 1% of the world's refugees will ever get resettled. And then finally, ending the book with a focus on local integration or return and seeing how all these stages can connect in one way or another.
0: Great. And so you're a great person to ask this question. Great. (laughs) Refugee stories don't merely exist. They are produced, curated, and circulated. So let's leave aside the types of discourses and narratives about refugees or migrants that are designed to outright malign them uh, for various purposes um, and just focus more broadly on people who are taking their lives seriously. Uh, What do you see as the major pitfalls facing those who seek to narrate migration experiences and how can they be mitigated or overcome?
2: I love this question and I also love the the way that you framed it because in it you mentioned that there are people out there that are interested in, in maligning refugees, which means that refugee stories and the ways that, that they're constructed are created against a background of other interests. And if we put the, let's say, people who are interested in restrictionism aside, I would point out that even the positive narrative, the constructions that are um, intended to bring out sem- sympathy or imp- empathy, those are also constructed with certain interests in mind. And so as a, a refugee scholar who's interested in putting the empirical data and people's experiences in a more dynamic frame that really reflects what their lives are like, one thing that that we face is that you are creating the story against the backdrop of what's seen either as in a positive light, but it's not really positive if refugees are constantly being pitched as the, these people who are only defined by the hardest things that they've gone through in life, are seen as people that that one should feel pity for. Um, And what contributes to this social construction of refugees as these ultimate victims is the fact that the primary knowledge producers in this field are uh, humanitarian agencies like the UNHCR, the UN Agency Charged with Refugee uh, Protection. And so um, they have a dual imperative. Not only do they produce knowledge, but, they they are there to help serve refugees and sometimes storytelling is a really important tool for them in that process and so um, as scholars if we're trying to uh, capture a more holistic experience of refugees it's really important to recognize and call out that what we often see presented as neutral facts things as simple as the scope of displacement counting the numbers of refugees do actually define in doing that who a refugee is and who a refugee isn't and place that label as their primary identity.
0: And as I understand that you've actually bumped up against these narratives while you were out in the field working mm-hmm. with people who are refugees and, and trying to learn about their experiences and, and found that their stories had already kind of been configured for them. Can you tell us more, just a little bit more sure. about that research concretely? Uh,
2: I think what you're referring to is conducting interviews, especially in Zatari refugee camp where uh, I've been writing about as a PR camp because stories from Zatari are not only oversampled, uh, so so here in terms of methods comes an issue of sampling, um, and this is not necessarily just a decision that scholars make. This is where gatekeepers allow you to enter, right, for journalists and scholars, but there have been experiences where I'm interviewing refugees and I recognize that they've actually been interviewed many times before and that there is an expectation about the kind of story that they tell and the kind of story that they think other people want to hear. And so um, I talked to refugees before who said, I've been on BBC, I've been on CNN, you know, I know what to say. I, I tell my story, they capture it and, you know, yeah. that's it. We're done. <laughs> so. Obviously, this is not a complete reflection of a refugee's experience and everything they have to say about their lives or how they feel or um, the challenges that they face. This is a reflection that just reiterates a story that already exists to uphold um, other issues. And and specifically, if I can make one last point, these stories serve the interests of the host state in that they don't ever acknowledge the fact that these people aren't accessing rights and resources to the extent that they they would like to, and they also don't are intended not to embarrass the humanitarian agencies that are providing aid.
0: Thank you, I can see that Neda, Mahbouleh on my left is dying to jump in here, so I'll introduce her real quick, but then get right to the question. Neda Mahbouleh is assistant professor of sociology at University of Toronto, Mississauga. She published a book with Stanford University Press entitled The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race. She is also the principal investigator on a multi-year project in Canada funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Uh, Can you tell us more about the project real quick?
3: Sure, Uh, thank you so much for, for helping Helping organize this panel and to Reem as well for the wonderful idea. The project that you mentioned is called RISE. RISE stands for Refugee Integration Stress and Equity. Uh, it's a team-based project with myself and 12 other researchers. They're my um, senior colleagues, also a postdoc, uh, graduate students and undergraduates. Uh, our trainees uh, are, uh, for the most part, Arab Canadian uh, young people who are kind of our our street team who uh, work very closely with 154 newcomer Syrian mothers and teenagers that have been resettled in our local area in Toronto. Uh, The mandate of our project is to follow um, these newcomers' lives uh, for five years post-resettlement to gauge uh, whether the promise, as Rowan was saying, of humanitarian aid and resettlement that Canada has promised uh, is how that's actually experienced on the ground uh, by, by the migrants so that's what we're up to we've just completed the first year of the five-year study and uh, we're jumping back into the field in January
0: so the question I want to ask you uh, which ties directly into what Rowan Arar was just talking about is about sort of communication, I guess. Uh, there's a, lots of great scholarship being done on experiences of migration, but a lot of it is being written in English. I think most of it is being written in English, and in addition is written in a register, register a certain academic mode that would be difficult for the people who are represented uh, in these studies to actually, actually understand or engage with. Uh, Is there a way to work across this linguistic barrier? Uh, Is it necessary to do so?
3: Yeah, this is a question that's been on my mind a lot. Uh, It connects also, I think, to the broader question that structures our conversation together, which is about the uses and abuses of narrative. Being in sociology, uh, we sort of, I think, um, in a selfish way, like, draw on so much from history, and we draw from folks in the natural sciences. And so when I think of the role of narrative, I often think about what colleagues in cognitive science and the science of teaching and learning have shown that narratives and storytelling is actually the most effective way to uh, create a memory impression for people. And so when we're talking about the impact of our work, uh, we have to acknowledge that narrative is sort of baked into the DNA of how human beings transmit and understand information. So on the one hand, narrative is both our greatest tool, but I think in looking at the contributions of people who do critical theory and political philosophy, we know that narrative is very alluring because it offers us the opportunity to tidy that which is necessarily very untidy. And so in my own work, I'm constantly struggling with the tension between narrative being effective, but also uh, very, um, almost like a collective hallucination (laughs) that we all sort of agree to. Um, And so where the rubber hits the road in terms of my research team and the research we do with resettled Syrian migrants, um, we know that based on the federal funding we have from the government of Canada and the different quote unquote stakeholders uh, that want to see our research findings, uh, necessarily they need to be translated into English for dissemination, both in academia and in the fields of government. Yet um, that perpetuates a kind of colonial framework where it's about extracting knowledge and then, you know, repackaging it uh, for use among people. You know, it serves a particular purpose. And so We had a very small opportunity to try to bust out of this in two ways. Um, One was one of the first papers coming out of the project is sort of a methods piece that's forthcoming in the journal Meridians with Duke University Press, and they offered us an opportunity to talk about the research design and the methods, but to also reproduce Audio transcripts uh, in both English, but also in Arabic, and so that's something they haven't done before. It's a fairly monolingual journal. Um, they've had, you know, transliteration and stuff in Spanish, but they were very interested in breaking out of the mold and to actually um, encourage readers of the journal to have to actually f- go face to face with um, alphabets that they're not used to. Uh, we also were spitballing ideas with them about including a. Uh, Open access audio component, where the RAs on the team are going to actually also read out loud some of the material from these interviews uh, in Syrian Arabic, which is really really exciting as well. And so we're trying to kind of destabilize um, the normative position uh, of English in this in this academic journal. We'll see how that goes, um, and also trying to really be intentional about bringing uh, the research participants who are these newcomer uh, mothers and teenagers into spaces uh, when they want to be invited to them. And so we've had um, two mothers serve as co-panelists with us at a major Canadian sociological conference. They were really positioned as the experts. And so it was a really intriguing experience to see professional sociologists defer to these study participants and to, um, you know, ask them questions in Q&A, and I think that there's these small ways where we're trying to um, denaturalize and to work against this problem that you're describing around language and the dissemination of knowledge.
0: Thank you. I'd like to introduce now, more formally, uh, Reem Bayluni. Reem Bayluni is Assistant Professor of History at Agnes Scott College. She's working on a book about the transnational context of the 1925 Syrian revolt, Reem, can you tell us more about your book project?
4: Thank you, Chris, for organizing this. And I really want to thank my fellow panelists here today for being part of this conversation and agreeing to be here today. And also to the audience who's here in this very final session of MESA. I really do want to encourage you to join the conversation and be a part of this roundtable. My work looks at um, the engagement of a Syrian-Lebanese diaspora with the anti-French rebellion of 1925 in Syria. That started in southern Syria and eventually spread to the rest of the country and also into Lebanon as well. And um, it looks at the ways in which the diaspora basically made this rebellion more transnational and the ways in which it drew a French mandate government into into this transnational politics. But today, I kind of want to dwell a little bit on somebody who was one of the formative figures in the diaspora, who was a political exile, Amir um, Sheki Barslan, a Druze politician from Mount Lebanon who, up until World War I, spent his life in Mount Lebanon as a local politician and then spent the rest of his life in exile. He was born in 1865. He died um, in 1946. I've been thinking a lot about his life and his life in exile and what that means
0: thanks for being here and helping make this happen again reem and uh, this last question is going to be for reem first but then we'll allow our roundtable participants to also chime in and then we'll get some questions and comments from those of you who are here before moving further Reem and I collaborated on a podcast episode that narrated the the story of one uh, Arab American immigrant who was deported from the United States. Uh, And in that process, uh, I encountered a lot of challenges, but I also became very excited about the possibilities of different kinds of narratives and and what they do methodologically in terms of how we think about history and some of the ways they destabilize certain categories and and contexts. So I want to ask to you, Reem, you know, what are the possibilities of narrative? There's so much we can critique about narrative as we're doing here, but like what does narrating migration do for us as historians seeking to understand the Middle East and the world?
4: That's an excellent question. I think because migration allows us to think about connectivity, especially as a historian of migration or historian of migrants, it has the potential to in the field of Middle East studies, decenter Middle East history break out of the sort of boundaries of area studies and also question Eurocentric global histories. I think a lot of times when we think about global history or when we read about global history, it's done from sort of a top-down fashion. It starts in Europe and emanates outwards. But when we can think about exiles and we can think about migrants and the ways in which they move through the world and the ways that they experience the world as migrants, um, we can tell a much richer story, I think. And to use Arslan as a case in point, he allows us to tell a story about the Middle East and European transnational and international history and networks in connection with internationalism of the interwar period that aren't necessarily obvious from the start or, or obvious in the historiography of the League of Nations, for example, um, because he ceaselessly petitioned the League of Nations during his lifetime. Um, And he actually based himself in Lausanne to be near Geneva, so he could act as the unofficial representative of the Syrian people. So as, as a politician, he used to work for the Ottoman Empire and then found himself in political exile after the Ottoman Empire no longer existed. He really had to think creatively about refashioning his life and making meaning of his life and also working for a national cause, although he no longer in any official sense, belonged to the nation he left. So his life story really does produce a non-eurocentric, or a challenge to eurocentrism in a sense. But also, piecing together his life history, I mean, there's you know the, a biography of him written by Will Cleveland, who, and I'll just read a little bit of um, what he writes about exile in particular. But he writes that the widespread influence he came to exercise is explained in part by his enforced exile, continuing on to say that, and I quote, deprived of a regional base by British and French restriction on his entry to their mandates and protectorates, Arslan could pose, a universal, could pose as a universal spokesman whose counsel transcended local concerns and embraced the entire Arab Islamic cause, and I end there. Cleveland's book does an excellent job, but as I've been digging deeper into my research about the transnational rebellion, I'm realizing that there are f- entire folders and boxes on him that are in France, they're in the United States, they're in Switzerland, they're in Germany, they're in Beirut, they're everywhere. And so it really made me think about exile, at um, political exile, as also an intellectual history that is about circulation, about networks that, that connect the Middle East, to actors and places beyond, um, and how it really you know, upsets our understanding of space in a way. T- to understand his life, you'd have to be able to speak and understand and translate many languages. And so it really does tell us about the creative possibilities of exile, but how difficult that must have been to also live.
0: Right, and Reem Bailuni has just foreshadowed uh, part two of our discussion about space, but before we move there, I wanna open that question up about the possibilities of narratives to our, our panelists and then have some discussion uh, I can start by turning to Neda Mahmoula, you have anything you want to say?
3: Sure. This is a matter I've thought about a lot, in particular with regard to my first project uh, that was about uh, the racialization of Iranians in the United States. Typically, in the sociology of immigration, we think of immigrant resettlement or integration, assimilation as a series of like inputs and outputs. You think about the human capital that a migrant brings with them to the host country, you think about Variables that can be measured once they've arrived, like you know their socioeconomic status, eventually educational attainment if they're a young person or successive generations who are then born in the receiving country, um, you know things like residential segregation or integration into new neighborhoods, um, but for me what always was missing from that and particularly in the case of iranians was that they fared quite well when you're looking at these inputs and these outputs and yet uh, there was so much evidence about how the fine-grained texture of these experiences of integration and resettlement uh were a far cry from the what the variables sort of said right um and so my entire first project was really motivated by harnessing narration as a way to sort of undermine some of the most dominant theories and presumptions of my field. Um, and I I feel like um, I still haven't quite captured that magic in the next project, and that's why all of the work of the panelists um, is so important, I think, for me to think about relative to this, uh, this population that we're working with uh, in Canada, because um, there's so many Assumptions with Canadian multiculturalism and and different sorts of inputs and outputs that are very salient in that situation. Um, and so, I look forward to hearing what others have to say about this.
1: Andrew Arson, anything to add? This makes me think of a conversation that I've been having um, in various places with uh, Lily Balafe, who's a historian of uh, Middle Eastern migration to to Latin America, both about the possibilities, actually, of of um, Studying Middle Eastern migration or migration more broadly, um, and the way in which it can unsettle disciplinary frames and lead us to rethink the disciplines that we work in—history, sociology, anthropology—but um, also um, rethink national histories and kind of, yeah, the way that we think about particular places: Canada, the US, Argentina. But you know, alongside those possibilities, there are also challenges that uh, Reem was hinting at—not just the linguistic challenges of of you know being able to read the sources and make sense of them. But also the the material challenges of you know being able to afford to get to the archives wherever they are, and you know fly there, stay there, whatever. And I suppose one thing that we have to think about is is who can do this kind of transnational or multi-sited research, um, you know, and the positions that we're in, kind of working in the global north, uh, in institutions of the global north. And it's not always easy for us, but kind of we're just about able to manage it. But kind of thinking about the possibilities and the challenges for others, perhaps, in other institutions in the global south uh, to, to do this kind of work, and what kinds of perspectives they might bring as well to it, people in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East. Rowan Arar.
2: Thanks for, for posing this question. Uh, and just building off of what the other panelists have said, um, my first thought is actually a, a simple point that I think will ring familiar to. The audience members, which is as somebody who studies refugee displacement and particularly Syrian refugee displacement after 2011, there was a very clear shift in how the world was talking about Syrian displacement after the huge influx of asylum seekers to Europe in 2015. I mean, thinking about how the Middle East fits into these larger conversations of migration, let's not forget that there were millions of displaced refugees, not only Syrian, but also Palestinian and uh, Iraqi and Sudanese and Somali and Yemeni refugees in these countries. And yet the conversation about refugees did not make the daily headlines until they came to the shores of Europe and it became consequential for states in the global north. And in terms of knowledge production, I think it's very clear that our academic knowledge production does respond to what's happening in the world and what's uh, you know in the news every day. So it's worth pointing out how when refugee displacement became so consequential, especially to Europe, all of a sudden there was a new shift towards looking at what the study of the Middle East has to offer. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the role of money in knowledge production, um, especially you know thinking about who can do this scholarship and how this scholarship is funded. Even people who have access to these populations and speak the language and live in the Global South and refugees are their neighbors or their family members or they are refugees, much of the opportunities that they have are framed by maybe having to apply for funding from an NGO. And therefore, the um, knowledge that they produce is always in conversation with this global structure that's not only interested in humanitarian aid, but also immigration control. So I think that that we have to constantly keep this in mind as we assess not only what we know, but also the questions that we haven't even broached.
0: Well, that's <laughs> that's a nice segue into opening up a little bit to our Uh, audience participants.
5: Hi, uh, I'm Nihal Kayali. Uh, I'm I'm a doctoral student at UCLA in sociology, and so I guess my question is more directed towards the sociologists, so anyone can answer. So there were actually two conversations, I think, about storytelling here. One is the migrant themselves telling a story, and then there is the narration that we do as scholars. So they're kind of meta-storytelling, you know, and you know, we splice and dice this however we do in our research, and um, one thing that interests me is, you know, is the conversations we have in socio- sociology all the time about the positionality of the researcher. So when you're getting that story from a migrant, so whether it's a humanitarian agency or whomever, The audience matters, right? Like when I do my research in Turkey with Syrian refugees, they know me as a Turkish American. You know, like my identity will shape the way that that story is told. And so I'm just wondering how you guys methodologically do that next level of narrative in your research while kind of keeping in mind that that story that they told you might have been told very differently to another researcher, Um, and then how you like theorize. Knowing that you know these stories are actually very, but well, perhaps might be audience specific.
2: It's a great question, and there are many ways to answer it. But I, I suppose I couldn't answer it without telling you what my positionality is, right? So um, I am a Palestinian Jordanian American. So I have multiple overlapping identities that um, can play into my data collection. Uh, one way in which who I am and how um, talking to refugees as who I am might affect the data collection um, also happens after the microphone is off and when the interview is over. I was really intrigued by, and in, I guess in some ways felt a, a sense of a, a serious sense of responsibility when refugees who are interested in resettlement or eventually ending up. In the West, asked me questions about my family's own migration experience and what does it mean? What has it been like for for my family to come to the United States? And uh, how does that shape our family unit? How does that shape uh, religion and religiosity? And these are questions that were being asked to me not as a, a you know scholar with a you know big S, but as a, they they were they have questions and they want to know and here's a, an opportunity where you can talk to somebody who's been there who's there to talk to you, um, and not only do I think it's a privilege to be able to answer those questions and to answer them honestly, even though sometimes I know you know they might not like what I'm gonna say, right? Um, but I think we owe that to our participants. But also I think it shapes my my research agenda as well. So um, learning. before you go into the field, you identify what the gaps are in the literature and you think about how to speak back to the scholars. And I think once you're in the field, you learn about what people who are in the field have questions about, um, and, and that then also ends up shaping what your next projects are and i think a lot of that has had to do with my positionality and i, I suppose i should also mention access right i'm a jordanian citizen doing research in jordan um i'm a, a, a native english speaker doing interviews with humanitarian professionals from all over the world who also speak english and i i don't have I have a certain kind of American accent that also allows me uh, to have a conversation that is privileged in, in a way. And then, of course, my own refugee history. right? So when uh, I'm talking to humanitarian aid workers who are, also have a refugee history, they're telling me about their grandmother, I'm telling them about my grandmother, and then we're sitting together with with people who are displaced and talking about our own refugee histories it's a very big part of of
3: who I am and what I do. The last point that you made, I think, is so salient to things I've been thinking about. Um, Sort of the identity categories that I always were, I was conscious, actually mediated my entry into the field. Things like daughter, mother, Woman, you know that I've I've traded on those in many situations as points of access and connection with the folks with whom I'd like to do research. Um, but I also have begun to realize that there are ways that those identity categories can actually inform and improve my scholarship. That rather than in the academic in the academy, we're really encouraged to be these like disembodied brains. Um, but when I had the experience of writing my first book, to really see my uh, responsibility as a daughter, as a mother, as a community member, and to write from that, I think was a really empowering and integrative sort of an experience, and I had had that experience methodologically in the field, but then to think about that as, as not something I had to apologize for in a room full of sociologists, but to actually harness that as an analytic strength has been a journey for me, um, but it's something that I think uh, we, we could stand to talk about a bit more.
5: Hi, my name is Nova Robinson. I'm a historian at Seattle University and I regret that I was not able to hear the very first part of this conversation. So if this was covered, let me know that I missed out. Um, And I do apologize about that. I was at another panel listening to the one paper that's directly related to my research. Um, So I'm very curious about the effective side of migration, especially kind of the hope and the optimism that sends people who have choice into a migratory experience. But I'm also very curious about the feelings and emotions that arise when those migration attempts are unsuccessful, whether or not an individual is denied access across a border or if they enter a country, the specter of deportation. So I don't know if that surfaces in any of your research, but I'd be curious to hear what you think about the effective elements of migration.
1: I mean, I I think it's something that we have to to contend with. And to go back to to Neda's point, about disembodiment Um, sometimes as historians or scholars we we try and discard those elements of the sources that are uh, unsettling or inconvenient in those sorts of ways Um, partly because we want to do justice to our subjects and we don't want to um, present them as as angry or as mean or as petty or whatever and we want to try and kind of present them as optimistic striving hopeful subjects but I think we have to be honest to them, whether we're kind of you know, recording their life stories or whether we're finding those stories in the archives. I think we owe it to, the, to the, the people that we're talking about and whose stories we're trying to recover, to be honest about their foibles and about their disappointments, as well as about uh, the more positive aspects of their life stories and of their personalities. And I think, yeah, we owe it to ourselves and we owe it as well to our readers uh, and our audiences um, to try and recover something of, of, of the different aspects of their lives.
2: Two quick points. One is that you can be both fearful and hopeful at the same time, and oftentimes, I mean, your question is what makes me think about that because that's not usually how people are represented in narrative. But the second point uh, that came to mind is how affect is weaponized. So how threats lead to fear and also control behavior. Um, And so, Thinking about how refugees may be afraid about of at, at a time when working in an unauthorized fashion would lead you or subject you to forced encampment uh, doesn't mean just because you're afraid that you're not going to engage in it, but it does mean that it's going to affect uh, your life and your family's life um, in very serious ways.
6: So my name is uh, Joshua Donovan. I'm a, a PhD candidate at Columbia. In, in the course of my research on the just broadly the Antiochian Greek Orthodox community um, in Beled I I also realized that I would need to grapple with the diaspora to tell a complete story because there's so many people in there and as I've been uh, roaming through the sources on the one hand it's been really enriching and, and productive as a historian to sit with the immense diversity, the heterogeneity and and contingency and, and, and just the just the messiness that these kinds of transnational stories can tell. Um, it's helped me to, to think beyond nation state historiographies and, and complicate even sort of sectarian stories. But then you know a, as a historian I, we're trained to you know pick up our pieces from the archives and construct coherent narratives of you know very specific change over time um, so I'm wondering if uh, either to the historians or the sociologists whomever wants to take the question how you you stay true to that that messiness and and that uh, really um, and, and, and the productive possibilities of it while at the same time having a narrative that does justice to the stories but can also uh, be coherent and, and can be understood.
4: Your question leads quite well, and it's a very good question into the next question. Um, but I guess I'll just jump ahead of that and and say that with respect to Sheikh Bashlan, for example, he you know he's often discussed as an Islamic nationalist, but also someone who was working very concretely and very directly for the cause of Syrian, Lebanese independence, and for the cause of Palestine. Um, and so thinking about his, his life in exile um, and the ways in which he tried to make a living and also make connections with various people who he thought could help in with respect to those causes and also help his own ambitions and political career and to stay relevant with respect to the national cause, um, I think a part of me is maybe thinking that it was this very nature of exile that, that kind of did shape his commitment to the, some sort of cosmopolitan Islamic nationalism because he didn't really experience, experience the nationalism that is constructed and created within the confines of a particular bounded nation, so to speak. And then later on in his life, He flirts with fascist Italy and Germany for the advancement of these causes. And so, again, how do we explain that? And I think I'm starting to sort of fall back on the idea that that exile creates these creative but really messy possibilities and that we should be true to, to, to that messiness.
0: We are now going to move to the subject of space. There'll be a little quicker section of our conversation uh, that arose naturally out of what we were talking about and thinking about in terms of narrative. So we'll start by turning to Reem Bailuni and Andrew Arsan. Uh, Migration involves movement between spaces. Yes, we can agree. Some of which are conventional geographical concepts like nation-state containers. Reem's already alluded to this. And these are often also barriers to movement. And these movements also reveal what some scholars refer to as hidden geographies. This was a term that came up in your abstracts. So what are some of these hidden geographies uh, revealed by studies of migration? And is there a feature of hidden geographies as like a concept that is uh, distinctive or unique and analytically uh, useful for us?
4: I came across the term hidden geographies in a work by David Featherstone about internationalism and solidarity. And it as a term, to think about um, the work of the left that is not typically revealed in Eurocentric discussions of the history of the left and of solidarity. So thinking about a decolonial, um, much broader, much more inclusive, but also messier discussion of what that means when we think about, when we move outside of Eurocentric circles to discuss to include discussions of the left. And so it, it had me thinking about a lot of the actors that come up in my work and in the histories I'm looking at that I think in some ways are do, do kind of reveal these hidden geographies. I mean, thinking about Sheky Barclan's life, for example, um, but more specifically on the question of exile. There's this quote by Edward Said in his um, article, which I have in front of me, Reflections on Exile, that has me thinking about the space, spatial and temporal shifts. Um, and it, it goes like this, for an exile, habits of life, expression or activity in the new environment inevitably occur against the memory of these things in another environment. So I think in, in a way exile produces both a spatial and a temporal dislocation where memory is re-inscribed onto the experience of the present. And one example that I came across in, in the archives Um, It was a letter by Shekhi Barslan to a friend where he's um, writing about a trip to the Balkans in the 1930s and he's in Bosnia. And he said he mentioned that it had been so many years since he actually heard the Aden and that that was so important to him. And so he's he's using the memory of, you know, hearing the Aden back home and and, you know, experiencing the present through that memory and obviously to talk about the spatial dislocation there.
1: That segues really neatly into some of what I wanted to say, and it also connects back to actually the question that Nova uh, Robinson was asking about affective histories or kind of the place of affect in our work. Um, Because I'm interested in some of the sensory experiences and affective experiences of movement itself. Um, As historians of migration, we tend to think in terms of movement from A to B and A those places, A and B, those two, you know, the end po- the starting point and the end point of the migration are things that we really tend to be more interested in. And uh, along with other scholars, people like Randa Tawil and uh, Aisha Polat and others, kind of, I'm interested in those spaces in between the staging points of migration and, and actually some of the difficulties that people encounter along the way and the effective and sensory experiences of that so working in marseille which was a key staging point for lots of people from ottoman bila de Shem, kind of moving towards latin america and north america kind of you know trying to think about those spaces and they're literally hidden spaces in the sense that the neighborhoods in which the dos houses and hostels in which migrants lived uh, were bombed by the nazis during the second world war and then those streets have been renamed uh, they've now been gentrified uh, they're all kind of airbnb's and whatever so you know the the the, the spaces that the migrants inhabited, sometimes for quite long periods of time, have been layered over. You know, the sediments of history, sediments of generations of kind of urban change that have uh, led to the disappearance of these histories. And I'm really interested in trying to recover the economics of these spaces um, and kind of the, the economics of the entrepreneurship of moving people right uh, through borders in legal or illegal ways. And also, yeah, the, some of the kind of more... Embodied experience, sensory experience of it, you know in ca- Hearing Arabic after months of not hearing Arabic running into a relative or a friend You know, there's a moment in Khalil Sakakini's uh, diaries where, you know, he t- when he's in New York And he talks about kind of hearing somebody else from Jerusalem and kind of the the pang that you feel when you hear that accent, you know uh, Food, music, whatever it might be And I imagine that actually for the sociologist and the anthropologist kind of this probably uh, resonates as well.
4: You know, Arslan spent much of his exile in Lausanne but he first was in Berlin and then he went to um, Mersin for a bit and then Lausanne and but also traveled you know across Europe and then to the Americas as well And so what this allows is again is this going to back to this idea of connectivity is f- for actors that he's connected with in the Middle East in Syria in Lebanon in Palestine to be connected to actors that are all the way in you know New York, and it's, it's interesting there because this, this translation, this circulation is not only happening in different spaces, but it's happening in diff- through different mediums, through letters, th- through a transnational press, and in different languages.
1: Just about kind of the geographies of all of this. I mean, there's work in the history of science on the ways that places that people previously maybe would have thought of as peripheral. You know, so for example, like, you know, Madras, Chennai in southern India, the way it become a, a key center for the development of meteorological science... And I guess, you know, thinking about places like Marseille or New York or Buenos Aires, um, you know, the way that they can become central in lots of different ways for, uh, for the Middle East kind of helps us to reshape the geography of, uh, of that space. And, and you, know, you know, keep in mind the territorialization of the Middle East, but also think about the ways in which that geography is distended and pulled in lots of different ways. And the way that people like Shekhi Barslan or Amin Rehani or others can themselves become kind of centers and nodes of correspondence, of political exchange, um, you know, political lobbying, um, you know, sending letters, meeting people, all of that. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a very rich kind of history there to be told.
0: Well, I guess it's a good uh, moment to move on uh, to our sociologists. We'll, we'll go to Nada Makbule first. So I've got a great question about space, at least I think it's a question about space, one that really was inspired by reading what you both work on. Um, And that's about the space of the community, refugees and migrants who live in a community. And often in history works, we might refer to an Arab American or Iranian American community as if it's like this organism that's a whole that's monolithic or just, we just take it for granted. But in sociology or anthropology, you can't really think, go around thinking about community that way because you're in the community. That is your entire space. That is your research space. And you see the complexity and the dynamics within it, the tensions, the fragmentations and so forth. So I'll just invite you to talk about uh, your biggest lesson or surprise that you encountered or learned Um, regarding community as a site of research and what you can tell us to help bring more nuance to how we narrate the the stories and histories or experiences of migrants with regard to the issue of community.
3: Yes, uh, this is a question that I think we both probably spend a lot of time thinking about because uh, when you enter the field of sociology as an undergraduate, uh, what's sold to you as the sort of brass ring or the, the absolute best type of work that would be the most valued is something that uh, from a methodological and practical standpoint would be entirely representative of the population that you purport to study. So for example it's a sort of bean counting version of like um, if there's X number of Arab Americans in the United States and they live in these five regions in this proportion then I'm going to try to replicate that on a small scale with the people that I recruit in my study, right? So that the smaller sample that you have is generalized so that the claims you're making about the small group actually reflect the big group. And that's sort of taught to you as the gold standard in our field. Um, it takes a epistemological approach to knowledge uh, that is very like deductive, quantitative, et cetera, et cetera. I think um, our work benefits from the insights of quantitative scholars, and we both use, I think, data sets in different ways that, that are created from that kind of a perspective, but also it was very, um, explosive for me, particularly in graduate school, to think about sampling uh, differently from a more inductive, and I think this is more in line with the sort of humanistic approach is to do something called we call purposive sampling. It's not representative and that's not the aim, but it's about making theoretically and analytically justified choices for including representatives, quote unquote, from the community for different ends. So you can think about it as like involving people in your study who have power and those who are subjugated, holding both of those things together at the same time, insiders and outsiders, those who are legible, in like the prevailing categories and those who are illegible. Uh, so I think when I when I learned that it didn't have to be that kind of um, approach, when I thought about how to represent community within the research design of my own projects, um, that was something that that really shaped uh, all of the different projects that I've ended up doing.
0: And that was called propulsive Sorry.
3: sampling. Purposive.
0: Purposive yeah, sampling. Yeah.
2: So like sampling with a purpose. Right. <laughs> That's where it comes from. Purposive okay. sampling.
0: <laughs> Roan R?
2: I suppose I wanna address this question in two ways. Uh, The first is to throw another question out there, which would be what does homogeneity conceal? So when uh, we talk about groups as if they were just this one one monolithic group, um, what kind of blinders does that create for us? And in, in the case that I am very familiar with of specifically syrian displacement in jordan you have certain refugees uh, like those in the quote-unquote pr camp zachary what i'm calling the pr camp uh, are overrepresented and their experiences um are not only curated and edited themselves but I can tell you there's this one woman I met in Zahtari, and later I follow the UNHCR on Instagram. And so I just kept seeing her for Mother's Day. She was on the Internet, you know, and this she became the, represent, the representative, the face of this community. And when she becomes hyper visible, other refugees who are in much harsher environments are people that not only do we know less about, we don't even know to ask about them, right? And and I think that, um, so recognizing that there's heterogeneity and not making these overarching claims about a certain community is really important. And then I, I wanted to offer some insight from what I learned from refugees, what they taught me about community. I was doing an interview with this one woman, uh, you know, and it's just me and her and we're talking and, You know, a few minutes later, like her sister comes in. What are you talking about? A few minutes later, her sister-in-law comes in. What's going on here? Someone else comes with food. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, your whole family is here? It turns out that they... Worked very hard to maintain their community, obviously through their family. So all of a sudden, you have more than 50 people who are in displacement in a refugee camp, and they're they've created and and brought their whole community. And I was thinking about how refugees, um, especially going back to narrative and how they're um, pushing against this victimization uh, story have agency in creating community and keeping their community um, alive, and especially when it comes to family. Yeah, I'd love to jump in
3: because that is so relevant to the work that we're doing right now uh, with newcomers in Canada, that um, by virtue of being resettled, mostly these government assisted refugees in particular through UNHCR, it is the imposition of a kind of nuclear family logic into who is recruitable for resettlement. And so you have these kinship structures that are really dense, uh, and these family formations Uh, quote-unquote back home in Syria, that uh, the the process of resettlement actually winnows down into a really unrecognizable form of what we call community. And so it's incredible that if you want to really index agency when you're looking at the, the families in our study, it's about the very creative ways that they've been able to recuperate a sense of family and community despite the logics of the UNHCR resettlement system. And so that's been, you know, people taking advantage of private sponsorship and other sorts of mechanisms in Canada to reunite family like uh, we have one family in our in our study where it's five generations like all the way from a great grandmother to a newborn baby in one apartment building and that wasn't because Canada resettled all five generations together it was the ingenuity of people in the community that brought the five generations back together and so um,
2: yeah all that you're saying uh, Rowan, is really resonating for me (laughs) I I just want to piggyback on that and make a, a tiny point Um, that I learned from my uh, friend and colleague Molly Fee who's a PhD candidate uh, at UCLA um, which is she studies refugee resettlement in the United States and from her I've learned how refugees who are resettled will actually forfeit some tangible resources that are provided to them uh, through resettlement agencies in order to to reconnect or reunite with family that might be elsewhere and so um, just from a institutional perspective, it may be that community is is not valued as much, and we can actually see and study agency by looking at how people um, will forfeit actual tangible resources in order to um, foster and exist within a community.
1: No, I just wanted to to chip in, um, because this actually brings me back to something that Joshua Donovan asked earlier about coherence and incoherence and and messiness. because I guess, for you know, h- historians and other scholars want to impose some kind of coherence or some kind of clarity, you know, a clarity of argument. You know, these are things that are privileged in, in scholarly uh, circles. But um, there's a way in which we can impose misleading labels in doing so. So the example I'm thinking of is Arab migration to the United States, for example, before the First World War. And the way that for generations we've thought of that as, you know, essentially we've thought of Arab migrants as traders of one kind or another people who try and build their way up from pack peddlers into you know shop owners into wholesalers uh, you know this tale of upward social mobility but you know work by people like at uh, North Carolina State kind of shows you know reveals other aspects of these uh, stories of migration these histories of migration you know looking at um, you know, uh, industrial workers in places like Worcester in Massachusetts or in New Jersey in Patterson, uh, and you know, so there's a way in which in trying to seek clarity, we're actually losing sight of the very variegated, very heterogeneous nature of these communities. I mean, I use the word, but you know, I'd like to think I'm using it advisedly. Yeah. These groups. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, we have another moment for, um, questions and comments. Yes
7: try my best to speak, but I lost my voice last night, so I hope I'm, <laughs> I know what you are. I, I, oh man, I wish it was fun, but I was actually, have a cold. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, okay so uh, my name is Benjamin Smith. I work at Swarthmore College, um, assistant professor in uh, Arabic literature. And I'm curious about uh, something that uh, Andrew, you mentioned regarding sensory experience as a historian, and and um, I'm curious if you tap into narratives and literary narratives to derive some of that experience and how that works. Um, you mentioned Amin Rihani, um, and I'm thinking of some of the, the individuals, the authors that I've worked on who actually express this stuff, but I'm curious how the historian, the sociologist deals with uh, that uh, event.
1: I've got to confess, I haven't done that work myself, but um, there are certainly others who are um, doing that work uh, looking at people like um, Naimi, for example, uh, Amir Rihani, uh, Jobran. Uh, you know, these canonical figures of Arab literature um, who become canonical partly by living in the Mahajar, by living in diaspora and by trying to make sense of that experience. Um, uh, but also um, work of people like Renoir Hayek uh, in comparative literature, but also in film studies, beginning to think about the way that we can think about and rethink national narratives uh, and literary and cinematic canons by beginning to reckon with migration and with uh, the way that filmmakers, in for example, in fifties Lebanon, in Renoir's case, uh, are thinking about migration and treating migration as a central feature of their of their work and their production and. How, you know, thinking about those stories and those films alongside, uh, you know, uh, the Rahbani brothers and Feroos and these other kind of representations of the Lebanese nation, what what that does to our understanding of um, that place at that time in the 50s and 60s.
4: I don't have much to add to this except to say, to invite Chris to add to this. And I remember we were working on translating that one song about uh, picnicking in Lebanon, but it was by a migrant. Maybe you was tabouleh, yeah, you right? It was called tabule. Yeah, you can talk about that. It was about
0: all exactly. the things that, um, you know, all the things that people who are away from home miss. So tabule, like the fresh cut parsley, sleeping on the roof in the summer. These were the affective um aspects of, I guess in this case, a sense of exile or regret about migration or loss that really came through in the music. And yeah, in the music and literature, we incorporate this into some of the podcasts because it really does distill in a way that no document ever produced by a state ever could what must have been a a, a widespread uh, sentiment among a lot of people. And so I think it's really important for just in general in the study of history to look at literature, um, but especially when trying to access those types of uh, things, yeah. Thank you for, <laughs> and thank you for translating that song. By the way, it was a very difficult song to translate,
8: Reem. <laughs> قد تسافرت ما طول ولا في لأكل التبولي ونوم التبوله ولو من العرزه بنا لاكله التبوله ولو من <تصفيق> صفرتنا طولي يا ضيعتنا اشتقنا الأكل التبولي عص طيحطنا وزر خيار لأيلولي من نقبتنا وكب النيل مشبولي حج الشلال بقنا لأكل التبولي ونوم الأرنى بقنا الأكل التبولي نطلع عالتل فوق الكرمات وناخد عصفور وشل ونصل الدبقات وتورد على عينت الزينات وبالكوع ملام السلع نعيد شكال ضيعة رباني معود عالكيف وفي عندنا خواب ملاني لتكريم الضيف وفيات السين دياني بيعز الصيف بتسوى يا امر كاني مليون ريال تقنى لركل التفول ومباردان تقنى
0: لركل Migration studies is a, you know, it's a political uh, act as a field to choose this topic. Um, and uh, I know all of you have a good reason why you're doing the kind of research you're doing. You're, you're trying to say something. It's not just random. So I'll start with Rowan Arar. Uh, in your abstract, you contended that refugee stories are political. And all of us probably think that everything is political. Um, so that's not a controversial statement, but you're saying this to counter what you see as a depoliticization politicization of refugee uh, refugees and their experiences uh, And so Can you repoliticize those experiences as a scholar and is that something we should be doing and if so how
2: we should start by? Recognizing um, Maybe identifying who we're in conversation with right Refugees are part of a global system of refugee management. So in order to maintain this system, there is an effort to tell a story that actually depoliticizes their own experiences in order to fit the interests of those who are maintaining this global distribution of the world's refugees. And in particular, going back to what I'd mentioned earlier, the role that humanitarian agencies Play in this global system of refugee management often includes telling a story that is um, explicitly depoliticized in certain ways. One way in which the story is depoliticized comes from this construction of refugees as victims, not as people with agency who make choices about how they leave. In fact, this there is a large and burgeoning conversation about the distinction between a refugee and a migrant, and worthiness is many times predicated upon not having a choice. There is no agency. You have been forced to leave. And so these definitions that are um, not just colloquial, but that have very uh, important consequences in terms of who gets access to what kind of protections and safety. Recognizing how refugee stories have been made interchangeable is a, a form of recognizing the politics of it. And Repoliticizing it would include kind of going back to our earlier discussion on community, which is recognizing that people all have uh, their own experiences of displacement that are shaped by their own interests, right? So it's not like people's experiences are interchangeable. It, I think it's also important to recognize that politics is it shouldn't just be like one umbrella term. So politics operates just off the top of my head in how refugees leave, why they leave, when they leave, how they can enter a state. Once they're in a state, national politics, local municipal politics shapes where they can go uh, if they are subjected to forced encampment, if they're allowed to um, travel within the state where they're allowed to go, whether they can then migrate further abroad to secondary destinations or tertiary destinations if they've become IDPs, internally displaced people, is also shaped by a politics, a a regional politics or an international politics um, among states that works to contain refugees in um, this case, the global south. Once refugees actually, let's say, get resettled for less than 1% of the world's refugees, local politics affects how they are able to access certain resources or not and so recognizing how politics plays a role in all of these different ways and the different interests of political actors that can shape refugees' experiences and their options is really important and it pushes against this narrative of you know just the desperate refugee in need fill in the blank you know Um, and so i think that this is a really important project so Scholars may say everything is political and refugees are political, but they're pushing up against a narrative that really has to actively depoliticize refugees in order to provide aid and not kind of butt heads with state actors that are allowing humanitarian agencies, for example, to operate.
0: Uh, I'm going to ask Neda Magbule to kind of develop this thread further uh, and specifically ask about scholarship because scholarship that empowers migrants and refugees is itself kind of a political work. Prioritizing one kind of political work sometimes means that another kind of political work takes a back seat or it runs into a conflict with different types of uh, political projects, we could say. Um, and sometimes, as we've already heard about a lot, work aimed at helping migrants can even undermine various aspects or disrupt various aspects of their life in politics. So what is the potential for work that not only empowers And here by work, I mean scholarly work that not only powers migrants and refugees uh, and does other political work at the same time.
3: Yeah, this is (laughs) the question that will define, I think, uh, the careers of maybe myself and other people who try to do this work because we're caught in a bind where you want to produce knowledge that. Improves the current system as it's felt by migrants. Uh, you want to produce work that reduces oppression, bias, and systemic harm, but you also end up with conclusions that you know the political and economic system. As it is right now is actually beyond salvaging, and so you're kind of kind of caught between um, working within the system as it is to 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 create a more hospitable environment for folks versus wanting to blow blow it all up. And so I always turn back to like, where does that leave real people? Um, I think for us, as sociologists in the academy, um, this is oftentimes like a kind of mental masturbation type of a question, you know. But ultimately ways that I've been able to I think get myself out of this tension or this bind has been um, to think about deprioritizing myself as any sort of an expert or as a person who would be like a a connector and to to cede that ground and that role to other people so for example I'm thinking like In our work in Toronto, um, sometimes refugee resettlement organizations. So this would be like local NGOs and and groups that serve immigrant newcomers. They'll come to us and they'll say, you know, what kind of workshops do you think that the families you work with need? Who do they want to talk to? And they're oftentimes referring to their own staff and thinking about the capacity that they have to offer programming or resources. And I say to them, I would love for you to actually bring back alumni of like previous generations of refugee newcomers that you've resettled in Toronto, seed the ground of who's an expert here and bring back some of, for example, the, the large wave of Vietnamese and Laotian migrants that your organization helped resettle 30 years ago and have them come talk to these newcomers, right? Because the families we work with, they have a lot of fears around teenagers integration. You know, are we going to be able to maintain our values as Arabs, as Syrians, our, our religious beliefs, our, our cultural values? And so rather than me telling them like, oh, well, in the literature it says you'll probably be okay. And so take my word for it. You know, I see our role is really um, creating these sorts of spaces and these sorts of connections for people to, to, to do this work together themselves.
0: And if I can ask a quick follow-up about that something you flagged in the abstract and you kind of spoken to it in some way But I want to ask about the issue of feminist politics specifically because when you see on the ground work within communities you see that you know as as you mentioned uh, sometimes the um, Agenda of trying to empower women comes up against other agendas of trying to empower group uh, groups as families or collectives Um, Can you talk more about Uh, your experience with that?
3: It's interesting because we sort of chose in a pilot study that is then now the bigger study that we're working on. In our pilot study, we chose to work with Syrian mothers in Toronto because we felt they offered bang for buck, honestly. Like, that, um, very likely the mother is sort of the window into knowing what's going on with all the other members of the family. And so if we only have enough money to talk to X number of people, maybe we would we'd would have the best sight lines through the lens of mothers. And it was also a reaction to the way the seed money from the Canadian government sort of framed migration and resettlement as a, as a problem that had to do with like men's skills, sort of job skills, and an integration into the economy, and it was a very androcentric sort of an approach actually uh, in their call for for papers or their call for grant proposals, and so um, in a kind of like petty and reactive way, we were like, no, like, we're not going to talk to any men, we're going to only focus on mothers. Um, and so I, I see that as like, we sort of, we were making practical choices, but we were also making very political choices to to center the viewpoints of mothers. Um, but interestingly enough, like once we we went into folks' homes, um, you had the specter of like, the male members of the family who were very like, curious about the project, who very much wanted to be involved, and they sort of hovered in the periphery of the audio recordings uh, often chiming in as well and so I feel like most places where I've I've talked about the decision we made to center mothers people often will say to me like that makes sense or that tracks or I accept that justification it was when I went to an Asian American Studies conference actually that I had a really productive interaction with someone in a QA and a where they said you know like in many ways like you're reproducing a sort of hetero patriarchal, cishet het normative idea of family formation and by centering mothers, you've necessarily sort of um, prioritized certain types of reproductive work. And that really like hit me hard, I have to say. Um, the way I answered it was to say like actually it's in the refugee resettlement process that you have like these widows and there's this sort of recuperable subject in Canada of like the mother and so you end up demographically having a lot of mothers versus in Europe where it's like asylum seekers and it's the specter of the like scary brown young man traveling alone, do you know what I mean? So I was like part of it is kind of a Canada story but I also, um, I remain a little bit like perplexed and unsettled by the way our quote unquote feminist project does still rely on these sorts of tropes of like a salvageable, you know, Muslim woman and like all of that, right? Uh, so I, I sort of sit with Thank the you. discomfort of that.
0: Okay. I'm going to turn to Reem Baylouni now and ask a question about history because, you know, there's a lot of work in migration studies in the disciplines of anthropology, sociology, and political science that are very much embedded in the present. and this literature should be connected to the emerging areas of migration history uh, and Middle East studies in particular. Um, But in thinking about politics, what role does history play in this equation? What role does the past play in the politics of the present?
4: The way I like to think about this at the most basic level is to think about how I bring my research into the classroom. So in my classes, I like to ask my students to think about how notions of stasis, belonging, the practices affiliated with those and borders are interconnected and what, interconnected, I should say, in the modern period and what, how that shapes our assumptions about belonging. Like, why is it, for example, that we privilege certain types of mobility over others? Why do we accept life that is, you know, a lifestyle or a life that is bounded by, by borders? How have we come to accept those? as natural way of living and historians have answers to those questions the past had holds answers to these and like really gets us to question how over time as we move from the pre-modern to the early modern to the modern period how even as technologies of mobility are improved and proliferate there are still certain types of restrictions on mobility that you know that that are also increased. Historians of migration have a lot to tell us about those and have a lot to tell us about why in certain periods of history we witness increases in xenophobia and negativity towards migration over other periods. Um, And so when we situate those within particular historical contexts, it produces certain types of policies that we see, for example, today.
0: What are what are they telling us then? Historians have a lot to tell us. You said a little bit of it, but tell us more. Like what is what is history telling us right now?
4: You know, the Syrian migration as it was discussed in for example, the Trump election campaign and then later on as it became um crystallized in the Muslim border ban was like, "Oh, this this as if it was some new migration pattern that, you know, it was that you know Syrians had never been in the United States before but if we look to this longer history there is a longer history of Syrians arriving to, this, to the United States there is a longer history of migration bans and border patrol and all of that I think can can nuance the ways we think about you know, terms like refugee crisis, for example.
3: Yeah, I'd love to jump in just to say, like, there's this unique way that this roundtable at this Mesa in New Orleans, uh, for me, generated a lot of feels, I guess, (laughs) like sort of, you know, the many colleagues that we have that couldn't be at this meeting because of the Muslim ban, uh, people who weren't able to get visas, that their paperwork, uh, you know, like it's sort of like that's a metaphor also for the things that we're all studying and that we're talking about today. Um, The sort of migration history Of New Orleans. This was historically the second largest port in the United States, Um, but also the displacement and return following Hurricane Katrina. And I'm thinking about those sorts of histories as a kind of, um, you know, both living example that we're actually very blessed and lucky to sort of live with right now this meeting being held here but ways that right as everything that Reem was just saying about these previous histories they're really not the elephant in the room but they're like the elephant underneath our feet currently in this land and so I felt like that might be a moment to sort of acknowledge that this is a this is, a, I think, particularly interesting meeting for us because of how many colleagues aren't here and because it's in New Orleans.
0: Thank you for saying that, uh, Neda. And it kind of ties nicely into the final question I'm going to raise. Directed Andrew Arson and then invite wh- whoever wants to speak on it to speak and then do some question and answer with the remaining time. Uh, and that's a question about uh, MESA, Middle East Studies <laughs> Association of North America here in New Orleans in 2019. I love MESA as a space because the Middle East and North Africa is such a arbitrary historical construct in many ways, that there's actually a lot of diversity within this field, but also there's a lot of echo chamber effect in Middle East studies. I don't think anyone would be too offended if I said that. However, scholars who work on migration don't have that area studies echo chamber luxury, I guess, because they have to work across geographies and be in touch with scholars working on different times and places throughout the world So I think the best way to raise this question is just to ask for a concrete example or anecdote about a way in which you really learn something about the field of Middle East studies and how we talk about this region um, through uh, scholarly dialogue with people working on other regions, something that migration history or migration studies, rather, has taught you that can have a broad
1: application to how we think about this area studies field. So there's a few ways in which we can think uh, about this question. I'm um, begin to think about it. I mean, I want to start uh, not with methods, but with um, a story from the archives. Um, when I was doing some research in Marseille, uh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, kind of looking at these spaces in between, you know, the hostels, um, the, the port itself, and then the hostels that people stayed in while they were in transit, um, I was looking at some shipping registers, shipping manifests, and it really struck me, you know, Arab names, Syrian names, alongside Greek and Italian and Jewish and Armenian names. Um, And it really helped me kind of seeing those to really situate Middle Eastern migration within the broader global migrations of that moment between the 1880s and and the First World War. And I think it can help us to kind of, you know, speak to other middle eastern scholars but also scholars of migration more broadly and get them to think about ways to reintegrate the middle east into kind of the the stories that we tell about particular historical moments which is something that the ream was um alluding to earlier but more specifically about method i think when i was starting out my phd research kind of in the mid 2000s i guess i found reading anthropologies of the translocal uh, work by sociologists by anthropologists Uh, thinking about translocal communities, communities that kind of remain, you know, uh, that in some ways formed in movement, I found that incredibly uh, generative. And that wasn't work maybe that... uh, I didn't really find it in Middle Eastern studies. I had to go look at people working on South Asia, working on Southeast Asia, working on um, Latin America or the US-Mexican borderlands, um, working on Sub-Saharan Africa. So kind of one last example, um, you know, thinking about trading diasporas, um, there's a way in which sometimes we think about them as kind of, you know, flat, horizontal communities, right? that aren't marked by hierarchies and dynamics of class, but kind of looking at some of the stuff out there that was written about um, trading diasporas in South A- in sub-Saharan Africa, and kind of brought home to me just how how deeply hierarchical these groups can be, and kind of the, the very stark inequalities that exist even within these groups that we think of as, as maybe homogenous or kind of, you know, cohesive. So yeah, I mean, I think I had to go outside the Middle Eastern studies at that juncture, and for me it was incredibly, Generative and and helped me to rethink about the field in terms of the way in which Middle Eastern migration studies contributes to the broader field um, I mean the broader field in terms of Middle Eastern studies it just helps us to show just how arbitrary and kind of Yeah, the the, the territorialization of the Middle East and North Africa is um, which is a point that a lot of people have made in the last Few years kind of you know just how porous this region is, you know, you know There's a lot of work being done at the moment on kind of South Asian uh, Southeast Asian sub-saharan migration to Uh, the gulf to lebanon to egypt um, and that unsettles what we think about the region but also i guess more broadly kind of thinking that maybe this takes us slightly away from the stories of migrants themselves but the, the middle east as a as a place that has been formed through migration and which has also been a laboratory for population politics for ways to manage refugee flows displacement migration border controls and the like. You know, the work of people like Laura Robson, Keith Watson-Poole, others really brings that home the way kind of, maybe from the mid 19th century on, uh, if not from the, the early 20th century on, the Middle East has become a central place um, for thinking about, for, for the ways in which states and international organizations have thought about people on the move. Uh, people who've been forced to go on the move or people who've made that choice quite consciously. You know, so Laura Robson, Keith Watson-Poole, Ilana Feldman, others uh, really have you know helped us to think about the Middle East, but also more broadly about these global transregional processes. And I think that's incredibly productive.
3: I'll say that I feel that I've had a reverse migration to the way the question is posed, insofar as like my bachelor's degree, master's, PhD, all of these have been in sociology and American sociology is like incredibly parochial and nationally bounded. They've ceded the rest of the globe to anthropology and to other fields uh, on the one hand saying, well, that way we don't have to deal with colonialism. (laughs) Like they're the ones that promoted that and they can deal with the fallout from that. And we'll, we'll sort of focus on the United States. And so for me, it's been a reverse sort of a trajectory where Um, I had to access sources and narratives from the Middle East in order to make sense of my first project and my first case of Iranian-Americans. And so um, it was really the work of historians like Sarah Gualtieri, who did such brilliant work on um, Syrian migration, early migration waves to the United States, um, that I think for me, if I can sort of pin down the aha moment that really transformed the rest of my life. It was like making this connection through Sarah's work, to like being an undergraduate sitting in a sociology of race course where my uh, my professor introduced the concept to a room of sociology majors. We didn't know about racial prerequisite cases in the United States and the history of immigration and naturalization here. That for these in between groups they had to go to court and to legally make the case that they qualified as white and therefore could become naturalized U.S. citizens. And so that that even was a piece of American history blew my mind. Um, but in the course of doing the research and, and reading Sarah's work and other historians' work um, about Middle Eastern migration, I came across uh, a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court 1925, Tatos Kartosian, uh, an Armenian from the Pacific Northwest, uh, whose... Uh, application for naturalization had been flagged by an immigration uh, officer in Portland, Oregon, which happens to be the place where I'm from. And so in the back of my mind from undergrad, I remembered the name Cartosian. I had never connected it to the fact that my family um, for 25 years owned a rug store in Portland, Oregon, and it was about a block away from another rug store with the last name Cartosian all these things I'd sort of filed away in the back of my head, but I had not made the connections until it came to the time that I was looking at some primary documents to write my book, looking through the old cases, saw Cartosian, looked at the actual application, noticed that the address that was listed on this naturalization application, you know in the 1920s from Portland, Oregon, had this like illegible ad- address. I grew up in that city, but I couldn't make sense of like what this address was. I do some research, figure out that there's this like gigantic fire. Um, they have this online amazing little legend where you can type in an old address and it shows you what that is after they redrew the grid of the city and what the new address is. And lo and behold, long story short, uh, my parents' store was where the Cartosians had their first store during the time of this naturalization case. And there were already so many residences with the stories of Armenian Americans that were earlier migration wave, Syrian Americans. But the fact that I grew up on the rug store floor of the same store that Cartosian had and his family, the way they were dragged through the mud with this immigration case, um, for me, it was just like a kind of backwards pull into Middle East studies, a backwards pull into history that really revamped my relationship to academia and to the kind
2: of sociology that I try to practice. My experience is is very similar in the sense that, you know, in those first few years of graduate school, you're learning about the canonical texts and, uh, you know, especially in the realm of citizenship and rights and nationality, and then we would go to Jordan to visit family, and you know, here I am, a, a second-year grad student, being like the stuff that we read doesn't really map onto what I'm seeing around me, and um, just kind of starting at that point of dissonance and trying to connect these literatures is what has been not only so fruitful but so formative in shaping how I understand um, our scholarship and also uh, how I can how I see the world and. When I started getting interested in, from a scholarly perspective, let's say, about refugees and uh, and asylum seekers, so much of the uh, literature within the sociology of international migration was focused on the reception of asylum seekers and how asylum seekers were pushing the limits of liberalism so how were these western liberal democratic states going to deal with these asylum seekers that have now set foot on on this territory to seek some rights like how do they navigate this issue meanwhile Uh, most of the world's refugees are living in the global south in these countries that were, you know, characterized as, you know, they didn't have the same liberal values and yet millions of refugees were being given safe haven and protected and and obviously these are very different experiences but um, the point I want to make is that the literature was very interested in how refugees and asylum seekers in Western liberal democracies affected the rule of law, affected the state. Meanwhile, discussions of refugees in the global South or the Middle East were, you know, when they existed, were focused on the refugees in an international or humanitarian context. And the state wasn't really taken seriously at all, which is more to say that the host communities were also not taken seriously. And in fact, this term host community, I think is in some ways really problematic because it, it doesn't recognize that these people are also citizens, right? So m- while we talk about how German citizens may be affected by the huge influx of, of asylum seekers and refugees, when we talk about places like Jordan or, or Turkey or Lebanon, we talk about the host community and, and, and don't recognize their relationship um, as citizens and uh, to the state. And so something that Middle Eastern studies brought to the sociology of international migration, for me, was how to bring in the nation, the state, in conversations um, with other scholars who are mostly focused on the the legalistic and aspects that refugees and asylum seekers may pose to um, certain Western legal traditions and things like that. Reem? Similar to
4: Andrew, I- The scope of my research changed once I got to the archives, and I realized that because of the Syrian conflict, I couldn't travel to Syria for the type of research I was going to do on a different project, and I ended up at the Library of Congress looking at Syrian American journals from the early 20th century, and it was there that I realized that they had been writing about the Syrian rebellion, and and that's how I chose my new topic. Um, But then in the context of reading the debates about the Syrian revolt of 1925, I realized that, you know, it was um, thoughts about the rebellion were translated through very particular identities. So the villages that people came from um, and how that informed their perception of what was going on back home. And so I. I inevitably had to turn to sociology to find answers to those questions, and all of the literature on transnationalism, and especially the work of um, Roger Waldinger at UCLA, who was on my committee, who you know questioned the uh, the ways we in which we understand transnationalism as supranationalism. It was his work in particular that gave me sort of the critique to think about um, ways of thinking about long distance nationalisms or. It, not even that, but just long distance particularities, if we, if we want to put it that way, that were better suited to express what, what I had been witnessing in the sources. Um, and that really reflected the, the fluidity and the messiness of this interwar period where these were nations in formation, um, nation states, I should say, and political, um, political projects that were still being hashed out.
0: If anyone wants to say something, a comment, or a question about not just this, but everything we've been talking about today, now's the time.
7: Great. Um, I think my question is for everyone, but for Neda in particular with your work with the Canadian project, um, I'm curious how that work, and when you study a community for kind of a large project of this sort for a five-year project. How you also um, interact with that community in ways that gives them a sense of dignity in working with this study. You know, I've, I've been involved in organizations that have done outreach with uh, um, their resettled community, refugee community in the Philadelphia area. Kind of, I had, I know how that works on our, that level, but I'm just curious how this project and this conversation about politics and other projects you all may know about. Um, Integrates both doing the academic kind of because that the politics was really about the politics of the academic work around it. But I'm curious how the intersection of the academic and the personal uh, interweave.
3: I think this is such a great question, and it's something that I, I don't think we nail it nearly as often as we need to um, on a sort of ethical uh, level, um, on a kind of just human level. Um, There's small things that we've tried to do, like, for example, at the close of our pilot study, which was in 2017, where we were working with 41 mothers, um, we were able to give mothers a day off where we um, provided childcare to the children, like a ton of different sorts of activities, like playing soccer and doing art projects and we booked um, Syrian musicians and catering and we gave basically the mothers like an afternoon off where they didn't have to sort of deal with the like um, the things that they were typically uh, having to do on a day-to-day basis and we said you're taken care of, these are, you know, Um, uh, tokens for for public transit or uh, resources for taxi cabs, et cetera, et cetera. Please just come, you know? And so um, that was like a very small thing that we were able to do as a team was to basically host like two really big celebrations or parties where we brought everyone together. There's ways that we've tried to um, not just give academic conversations or uh, academic presentations, but to really um, bring specific uh, recommendations that mothers have given us, like directly to the Minister of Refugee Affairs in Ottawa, in, in the Ministry of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. Um, so, trying to serve in some ways as a direct pathway for feedback and um, and a voice uh, into into that ministry. Um, so, those are like, small things we're trying to do and bigger things we're trying to do. Um, there's a lot more that we can do. And so, I'm always keen to hear about other people's best practices, particularly people who are in academia who have to navigate kind of um, the the landscape, particularly uh, people who don't have tenure yet as well, you know, sort of that
2: balancing act that we have to do. Uh, so we try. I think it's very different if you have a team and, and you're doing this, but what about when you're by yourself and you're in the field and my way of addressing this issue is essentially holding yourself responsible to um, knowing what kinds of resources and opportunities and solutions might be out there for the people that you're talking to and this isn't systematic you can't i'm not saying that every person i interviewed i was able to in some way um, provide the kind of reciprocity that they deserve in for sitting down and talking to you and sharing these stories but I do think something that you can do when you're in the field is for example if you know that uh, someone you're talking to is interested in going to school you can then be the liaison that helps connect them I can't tell you how many CVs and resumes I reviewed for Jordanian humanitarian aid workers who are interested in maybe applying for another job or you know um, or just being on call I'm thinking about somebody who found out that he had the opportunity to be resettled in Canada and was going to do his interview and just wanted to talk about it and practice it. And so, you know, when you get this WhatsApp message, it's like, hey, can you meet me tomorrow? I just just, want to talk about this out loud and practicing it in English. You're just there. And I think that, um, you know, this isn't systematic change, but at least it's something that you can offer. And one thing that we can do as academics that I think um, is we have actually a, a good amount of power over is to um, privilege the voices of other academics who are also in in these countries where we work and not just treat them as the person who's gonna connect you to the community. And I've heard a lot of times about academics who are let's say at the University of Jordan or uh, at other universities in Jordan who essentially do they just get interviewed um, by whoever's coming in to do a research project for the summer and their expertise is essentially neglected. And so um, since we have more power in the space that is the academy or the university, uh, I think it's really important to um, keep track also of what kinds of fellowships and opportunities are available and pass those on and encourage them and include people in your panels and cite them. You know, And, and in that way, it's Again, this is not systematic change, but it is something that we can do as academics as we're doing the research and as we're in the field.
0: I think that is a great place for us to conclude just a bit early, just in case people want to have side conversations. I want to thank each of our panelists, Andrew Arsan, Reem Bey Rowan Arar and Neda Makbule for bringing so much experience and scholarly insight that often doesn't appear in print but is really interesting to talk about to this program that will be released to our listeners on the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, And I wanna thank everyone who came to this round table, the very last session of a very long MESA conference for coming. I know everybody's tired. I was tired way before this started. I actually feel (laughs) a little bit less tired after (laughs) listening to all this great uh, conversation. So thank you so much.
2: Microphones are off, you guys.
4: <laughs> <Where's> <laughs> this? this is really
2: fun. I wish all the panels were like kind of moved back and forth, like. Yeah.